And now remain standing for our gospel lesson, which is also our sermon text. I'm going to read the entire chapter of John 9. Listen to the gospel of God. Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva. And he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And he said to him, go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Therefore the neighbors and those who previously had seen that he was blind, said, Is not this he who sat and begged? Some said, This is he. Others said, He is like him. He said, I am he. I am the one. Therefore they said to him, How were your eyes opened? He answered and said, A man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and I received sight. Then they said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought him who formerly was blind to the Pharisees. Now it was a Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also asked him again how he had received his sight. He said to them, He put clay on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, because he does not keep the Sabbath. They're talking about Jesus there. Others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. They said to the blind man again, What do you say about him, because he opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him who had received his sight and they asked them saying, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But by what means he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. He is of age. Ask him. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he, Jesus, was Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, He is of age, ask him. So they again called the man who was blind and said to him, Give glory to God. Give God the glory. We know that this man, Jesus, is a sinner. He answered and said, Whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know, that though I was blind, 
now I see. Then they said to him again, what did, he, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Then they reviled him and said, You are his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we do not know where he is from. The man answered and said to them, Why, this is a marvelous thing, that you do not know where he is from, yet he has opened my eyes. Now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Since the world began, he has, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered and said to him, You were completely born in sins, and are you teaching us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And when he had found him, he said to him, Do you believe in the Son of God? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. Then he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may be made blind. Then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, Are we blind also? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say, We see, therefore your sin remains. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for your word, and we thank you, Holy Spirit, for inspiring this story, for preserving it for us. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for giving us sight, for giving us light. We ask that you would continue to drive out the darkness in our hearts as we meditate on your word together. And we ask in your name, Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. Well, today I'm going to try something that I don't often do, maybe I've never done in a sermon, which is to preach on a whole chapter, uh, and not just a whole chapter, but a chapter that is 41 verses. Uh, So that means it's going to look a little different, it's going to feel a little different, we're going to have to um, move a little more quickly, but really there's no way to chop up this story, this section of scripture into smaller chunks, so we just need to take it as a whole. John 1-8 to records a conflict between Christ and the religious leaders of Judaism, a conflict sustained by aggressiveness on the part of Jesus. His confrontational approach continues in John 9. We rarely see the Lord Jesus as aggressive as he is here, as he has been 
There was a, there was a remarkable setting for this conflict. The Feast of Tabernacles, as we've discussed before in previous sermons. The final night of the Feast of Tabernacles has already taken place. This eight-day feast is over. And on that final night, as on the preceding nights, the priests, uh, they, they lit four huge torches. And these torches, these lamps, were multiple stories high in the temple. And the holy men, the elder, elders of Israel, would light them and they would dance the night away with rejoicing in front of these flames that reminded them of the flame, the light that God provided in the wilderness as they went through the wilderness for 40 years when God took them out of Egypt. And it was in front of these extinguished torches that Jesus announced back in John 8, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So he's saying, these lights are not the true light. I am the true light standing before you. And his meaning was clear. He was the light, and the, his opponents, the enemies of God, were in spiritual darkness. And these were fighting words. And the Lord didn't stop there, but went on to tell them that they were from below, and he was from above. And as if this weren't enough, Jesus also told them that though they prided themselves as being children of God and children of Abraham, there was nothing of substance in their lives to validate their spiritual heritage. They had no fruit. As a matter of fact, Jesus told them directly that they were serving the devil. He says, you're not only not children of Abraham, not only is Abraham not your father, not only is God not your father, but also the devil is your father. And then toward the end of last week's passage, Jesus makes the most important theological statement in the Bible. Before Abraham was, I am. Here Jesus obviously identifies himself as Yahweh. The Jews knew what he was doing, and so they picked up stones to throw at him. But he escaped. And as we come to the ninth chapter of John's Gospel, we see that the themes of darkness and light are continued. Chapters 8 and 9 are meant to be read together. As Christ now leaves the temple at the beginning of John 9, it's a conscious portrayal of what happens when light goes out into the world. The light of the world is leaving the temple and going out into the world. John 9 is one of my family's favorite chapters in the Bible. It's deep theologically, it's rich literarily, and it's profoundly humorous, especially in the second half. And this chapter is a beautiful picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And before we dig into the details of the text, I want us to look at some of the broad theological, typological, and literary features. This is also something that I don't often do, but I think some of you will find this fascinating. And it's important for us to remember how these the authors of Scripture 2,000 years ago plus how they wrote, how they read, and how they wrote. John 9 is composed of eight conversations. This number eight is important 
throughout John's Gospel. Eight is the number of new creation and resurrection life. Jesus rose from the dead on the eighth day of the old week, which is the first day of the new week. Recall that in the old covenant, children were circumcised on the eighth day. So John symbolically weaves the number eight into his book. In John's gospel, for example, there are eight miracles. The eighth miracle is Christ's resurrection, which is a fitting since eight is the number of resurrection, new creation, new life. John's gospel also has eight I am statements. For, for example, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. Before Abraham was, I am. He makes eight of these I am statements where he identifies himself as the great I am of the old covenant. All of this is John's way of highlighting that Jesus, in his resurrection from the dead on the eighth day, has inaugurated the new creation. It wasn't just a new week, it was a new creation on that first resurrection Sunday. The old covenant is growing old and obsolete, as Hebrews puts it. The new covenant has dawned in Jesus' resurrection. So it's not by accident that John arranges chapter 9 into eight conversations. Kind of notice as we read it, it kind of it goes back and forth rather quickly in these conversations. Because after all, John 9 is about new creation, new life, new beginning. In this chapter, we get to watch a man become a new creation in Christ. We see the old man pass away. Behold, the new has come. That's the big picture here in John 9. And as chapter 9 opens, Jesus immediately encounters one who has never known physical light. A man born blind. And Jesus miraculously gives him sight and light. And notice how John carefully sets the stage for this miracle in the opening verses. Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And this man has been blind from birth in two senses. He's never seen the sun in the sky that rises every day, and he's never seen the Son of God with his spiritual eyes. Just as this blind man had experienced physical darkness since birth, so every human is conceived in spiritual darkness. That's the theological setup here in verse 1. All of mankind inherits Adam's sin. It's called original sin in theological terms. We are conceived dead in our trespasses and sins. And God, through His Spirit, through the work of Christ, must awaken us, must give us new life from the dead. Jesus evidently fixed His eyes, His, his gaze upon this poor man as they passed by, and he may have even stopped the procession because we read in verse 2, his, his disciples noticed something and, and his disciples asked him saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? The disciples 
suggest two possibilities here. Either he's blind because he sinned in his mother's womb, and so he had been suffering from this prenatal sin. Or the second possibility is that his parents sinned, and he's suffering because of their sin. And Jesus rejects both possibilities here. The man's blindness is not the the direct result of his sin or his parents' sin. Now, it would be theologically accurate to say that his blindness is a consequence of the fall. If mankind had not fallen into sin, there would be no blindness in the world. Blindness is a result of the fall. But Jesus points to an even greater reason for this man's sin. Verse 3, Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed through him or in him. In essence, Jesus is saying, I'm not going to get involved in a useless, profitless discussion. Suffice it to say that neither of them sinned. This man is blind so that the power of God can be shown forth. Then he concludes in verses 4 and 5, I must work the works of him who sent me. Remember those, the two uses of work here. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So the stage is set for a great miracle. Here was a man who had never known light. It's not like he had seen for a while and then become blind. His situation calls to mind, though, the words of Helen Keller, who did lose her sight as a toddler. She she wrote, Gradually, I got used to the silence and darkness that surrounded me and forgot that it had ever been different until she came, my teacher, who set my spirit free. Darkness was all this beggar had ever known. He couldn't conceive of blue or yellow or red or orange. A million glories of nature were hidden from him. The green of spring grass. The splendor of a sunset. Perhaps there had been a time when, as a child, he had reached up and felt the warm tears on his mother's face, but he didn't know what his mother looked like. He was always dependent either on a friendly arm or his uncertain cane. But now, as he begged outside the temple, he heard someone nearby say, As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Then, in the unusual silence that followed, he heard that man who said that, Neil, close to him, and spit on the ground. Then he felt hands apply damp clay to his eyes. And he heard the words, go, wash in the pool of Siloam. Verses 6 and 7. When he had said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with his saliva. And he anointed the eyes of the blind man with clay And he said to him, go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went and washed, and he came back seeing. As the blind man washed in Siloam, light poured into his eyes, and spiritual light began to pour into his heart. 
He could see now. There are a million things going on in this text, and we won't be able to plumb the depths, not even close. There's a lot of symbolism. There's a lot of typology. If you think about just the big picture of this passage, you've, you've heard the words work and the works of God and Sabbath. There are a lot of words that take us back to the early parts of Genesis. And I want you to think of another time when God took some dry ground and He moistened it and turned it into something new, a new creation. In Genesis 2, God took some dirt and He formed it into a man. He breathed light into this dry, lifeless Adam and He transformed it into a living, seeing person. The second century theologian, Irenaeus, believed that Jesus in verses 6 and 7 intends to symbolize God's process of creating the original man, the original human. Jesus is intentionally echoing some of the actions of God's work of creating Adam back in Genesis 2. Irenaeus noted that when Jesus healed the blind man in John 9, he didn't do it by speaking a word as he often does, as he usually does. He did it by an outward action that involved his hands working in dirt to make something new. And Jesus did it this way to show that the hand of God that molded the clay into a man in Genesis 2 is the same hand that gives sight to this blind man in John 9. The creator of the old creation is also the creator of the new creation. Irenaeus goes on to say, now the work of God in Genesis is the fashioning of man. For as the scripture says, and the Lord took clay from the earth and formed man. Therefore, Irenaeus continues, also the Lord Jesus spat on the ground and made clay and smeared it on the eyes, thereby drawing our attention to the original fashioning of man. And the reason I think Irenaeus is onto something here, even though this is not maybe normally how we read, especially modern literature, but I think he's onto something here because Jesus says up in verse 3 that the man was born blind so that the works of God could be revealed. And Jesus said he's come to do the works of God. Which takes us back to God's work, his original work in Genesis 1 and 2. The work of God is the fashioning of man, Irenaeus says. So in verses 6 and 7, Jesus is identifying his works as the works of God. And he does this all throughout all of the Gospels, where he does things and says things that make us think, whoa, God said that, or God did that. God is the one who walks on water in Job. It's God's finger that writes on the tablets, and God's finger that writes in the dirt when Jesus does it. So he, he does this all of the time. Jesus could have created the sight in this man with a single word, but instead he goes, he, he does an outward work that resembles the work of God when he created man from the ground. So what is Jesus telling us here? What's the point of these echoes and symbols and types? The message is that Jesus is God 
And he has come to do the works of God. His hands are God's hands. And his works are none other than God's works. And the main work that he came to do is to create a new humanity. The church is the new man in Christ. Jesus came to breathe life into lifeless humanity. He came to give spiritual sight to spiritually blind lumps of clay. He came to, Im- to, to imitate the work of God in Genesis. And he came to animate dead mankind. Because the mankind created in Genesis 1, Genesis 2 is dead. He came to anoint his people with water and the Spirit, he says in John 3. The word for anoint here is interesting. In verse 6, the word uh, for anoint there is literally chrism, which is the verb form of the word Christ. So Christ is christening. Jesus came to anoint or christen his people with water and the Holy Spirit so that they experience new birth that is from above. The one from above gives birth that is from above. That's what's going on here. That's what is happening to this man in John 9. We are watching him be reborn from above, made into a new creature. Well, there's more to say, but we've got to keep going. Verses 8 and 9. Therefore, the neighbors and those who previously had seen that he was blind said, Is not this he who sat and begged? Some said, this is he. Others said, he is like him. He said, I am he. Once he had convinced them that he really was the man who had been blind, the discussion turned to just what had happened. Verses 10 and 11. Therefore they said to him, how were your eyes opened? He answered and said, a man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and I washed and I received sight. Then they said to him, where is he? And he said, I do not know. Miracles in John's gospel are always meant to teach a deep spiritual truth. This miracle and the remainder of John 9 teaches us how to receive and to remain in spiritual sight. Jesus says in John 15, abide in me, stay in me. And so this story teaches us how to receive spiritual sight and to keep it, to abide in it. The question that John 9 addresses is, how do you get spiritual sight and how do you keep it? How do you abide in it and walk in it? Think about how the chapter begins and ends. It begins in verse 1 with a man who is born blind and receives spiritual and physical sight. At the end of the chapter, in verse 41, we find men who claim to have spiritual sight, but who are absolutely spiritually blind. Now before we get to the end though, we have to endure three ludicrous interrogations by the Jews. First, they interrogate the man himself in verses 13 to 17. They brought him who formerly was blind to the Pharisees. Verse 14, now it was a Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also asked him again how he had received his sight. 
He said to them, He put clay on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees said, This man, Jesus, is not from God, because he does not keep the Sabbath. He's working. Others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among these Pharisees. They said to the blind man again, What do you say about him? Because he opened your eyes. He said, He's a prophet. This interrogation quickly falls apart. It breaks down when they realize that this miracle happened on the Sabbath. That's the first breakdown. Some of the Pharisees concluded from this that Jesus is a sinner, not from God, since he is breaking the Sabbath. But other Pharisees concluded that there's no way a sinner could do the kinds of miracles that Jesus is doing. So there's this division. And the Pharisees face a theological conundrum and they can't find a solution. Ironically, what do they do? They turn, these these supposed know-it-alls, they turn to the ex-blind beggar and they ask his opinion about the law. And this is where the story starts to get funny. So you've got a bunch of scholarly Pharisees arguing over how to interpret the law as it applies to Jesus in this situation. They get so desperate that they turn to the guy who was born blind and they ask what he thinks. And the man born blind says he's a prophet. The second interrogation is of the parents of the man born blind. Surely, they're having no luck with the man, but surely they'll find a discrepancy of some kind when they question his parents See what happens, verses 18 to 23. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him who had received his sight. And they asked him, saying, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? If, if, if this is your son, how does he see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but by what means he now sees, we don't know. Or who opened his eyes, we don't know. He is of age, ask him. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. Notice that they say twice that they don't know Jesus. For the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he was Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So that didn't work either. This man's parents were so terrified that they they wouldn't cooperate All they would say is, we know he's our son, we know he was blind at birth, and we don't know how he can see now. Go talk to him. And this is is a cowardly response. They knew that Jesus healed their son. We find that out because John tells us that the reason they said these things is because they feared, not because they didn't know. They didn't want to get within 10 feet of confessing that Jesus is the Christ. Twice they said, we don't know him. We don't know him. This is what people who do not know Jesus say. This is what it looks like to be ashamed of Jesus Christ. Finally, they come back to the man born blind to question him again. This is the third interrogation, and it becomes pure comedy in a few places. Notice how this ignorant, uneducated beggar completely turns the tables on his dignified interrogators. He uses some of the cleverest dialogue 
in the whole New Testament. And as I read verses 24 to 33, notice how the Pharisees are becoming increasingly blind. The darkness in their hearts is getting thicker. Darker and darker. While the man born blind is growing in spiritual insight as the light continues to shine in his heart and drive out the darkness that was there. Verses 24 to 33. So they again called the man who was blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man, Jesus, is a sinner. He, the man born blind, answered and said, Whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. Then they said to him again, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Okay, so right, right there is a laugh out loud moment. It's sanctified sarcasm. Wait a minute, so you guys, let me get this straight, you guys want to become his disciples too. You keep, you're interested. Then they reviled him and said, you are his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we don't know where he came from. The man answered and said to them, here comes more mockery. Why, this is a marvelous thing that you do not know where he is from, yet he has opened my eyes. You can almost see his lips curl with increased sarcasm. Now, and and he continues to, to teach them, now we know that God does not hear sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Since the world began, It has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. So the ex-blind man has out-argued his intellectual superiors. So they resort to attacking him. Instead of coming up with a counter-argument, they just go ad hominem and attack him. Verse 34, they answered and said to him, you were completely born in sins. Very original comeback there. And are you teaching us? And they cast him out. The Jews cast the man born blind out of the temple, but the Lord of the temple found him. In verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and when he had found him, he once was lost, but now he's found He said to him, do you believe in the Son of God? He answered and said, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. Think about what the meaning is there. You have seen him, not just with these eyes, but you're seeing him with the eyes of the heart, as Paul calls them in Ephesians 1. Verse 38, then he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. The light of the world has gone out into the dark world with the result that a blind man saw not only with his physical eyes but also with his spiritual eyes, the eyes of his heart. And those who could always see perfectly with their physical eyes, these Pharisees, were confirmed in their spiritual blindness because they refused to believe in Jesus. 
we have to ask, how did these Pharisees, these religious zealots, these purists, how did they become so darkened in their hearts? How is it that men and women who seem to care so much about spiritual matters oftentimes become spiritually blind? And you can almost watch them become spiritually blind. Jesus provides the answer in the next verse, verse 39. And Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world that those who do not see may see. And that those who see, think they see, may be made blind. Christ came into this world so that those who think they have spiritual sight and insight will be shown to be blind and will be confirmed in their blindness. And so that those who don't think, don't suppose that they have spiritual insight will be able to see. The whole argument centers on recognizing need, on recognizing the darkness that we were conceived into. Do you recognize your need for light? Are you growing in your appreciation and understanding of how much you need the light of the gospel? Do you know the darkness of your heart apart from the light of the world? Those who know that they are by nature blind are the ones to whom Jesus can give sight, will give sight. And those who know that their spiritual sight is a pure gift from Jesus are those who will keep that sight, who will abide in that sight. So which trajectory are you on? Which trajectory are you on? Are you becoming increasingly blind like the Pharisees in John 9? Or is the light expanding inside of you as it did inside the man born blind? Is your spiritual insight becoming better or worse? Is your heart losing light or losing darkness as the light drives it out? Which character are you in John 9? Verse 40, Then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, to Jesus, Are we blind also? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say, we see. Therefore, your sin remains. Those who, those who go blind are those who don't realize their need for God's grace, for God's spirit, for God's light, for God's power. Those who receive sight are the ones who sense, by God's grace, their deep darkness. You see, here's how it works. As the light of Christ grows in your heart, your awareness of the dark places in your heart also grows exponentially. So as the light drives out the darkness, it also continues to reveal dark spots that need to be driven out. 
So if you're growing as a Christian, you should be growing in your sense of your sinfulness. Growing in your sense that Jesus really did need to die on a cross. And that judgment was not too much because my sin is that bad. If you ever get to a place in your life when you think that you've got a handle on most of your sin and that the days of darkness are all in the past, then you can know at that point with utmost certainty that your light has been going out for some time. If you want to see what the light does when it's shining at its brightest, then just read Romans 7. As Paul grew in grace and godliness, he became more and more aware of the sin that lingers. The Pharisees thought they had it all together. In their minds, they had arrived. Through their acquaintance with the law, they knew that they maybe weren't perfect, but that they understood more than anyone else. And, and yet, they did not understand how deeply infected they were with sin. So they adopted the external appearance of having dealt with sin, but they had never actually faced the darkness of their own hearts. They were self-satisfied. They said, we see when they were blind. In his introduction to the screw tape letters, C.S. Lewis writes, Some have paid me an undeserved compliment by supposing that my letters were the ripe fruit of many years of study in moral and ascetic theology. They forgot that there is an equally reliable way of learning how temptation works. My heart. The Pharisees knew none of this. That was not their style. Remember the parable that Jesus tells in Luke 18 about the two men who went to the temple to pray, Pharisee and the tax collector. And when they went... The Pharisee prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like all these other men, these robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all that I have. But the tax collector, unwilling to even lift his eyes up to heaven, simply prayed, God, have mercy on me, a sinner, as he beat his breast. Self-satisfied people, the religious know-it-alls, believe they see but are blind. There is no hope for the soul that desires to remain in ignorance of sin like this. There's no hope for the heart that prefers its own darkness. The blind man in John 9 knew his need. He came to know his need. I see was not a part of his vocabulary. He knew he was in the dark, spiritually and physically. He knew he was a sinner. And I I want to warn us against an unhealthy focus on progress in the Christian life. This will make you proud and 
your pride will dull you to spiritual realities. And then darkness will flourish within you. It's possible, you see, to seal yourself off from the light through pride and self-sufficiency. As with the Pharisees, our pride can dull us to the aggressive darkness of our hearts. This is a particularly strong temptation in our circle. The self-satisfied attitude of we see, we know, we understand is deadly. We easily comfort ourselves in our ability to see the sin, the shortcomings of the world or even other churches. We see moral problems. We see the ethical answers. We see how we're supposed to do this or that or what we're supposed to believe here or there. We focus on what we think we see out there. But if we're not careful, we never really see into our own hearts because we're distracted by seeing everybody else's sin and all the darkness around us. It's easy to congratulate ourselves while we allow evil to spread unrestricted in our own souls. In his opening words in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who realize that they have nothing within themselves to commend them to God. When Jesus said this, he revealed not only what is required to see the kingdom of God, but also what is required to abide, to keep seeing the kingdom of God. How happy and blessed are those who realize that within themselves they have nothing to commend them to God. Theirs is the kingdom of God. How happy and blessed are they because their emptiness becomes an occasion for God's fullness within them. I'll leave you with a quote from Charles Spurgeon. It is not our littleness that hinders Christ, but our bigness. It is not our weakness that hinders Christ, it is our strength. It is not our darkness that hinders Christ, it is our supposed light that holds back his hand. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to continue to conquer the darkness in our hearts through the light of your Son, Jesus Christ, and through the power of his Spirit. Do your work that you do through the power of your word being read and proclaimed. Do it in us, we pray, even now. And in the name of Jesus, amen.